Human innovation has seen the rise and fall of major global industries. Since the Industrial Revolution kicked off in 1760, the world has seen textiles, railroads and oil production boom to become the largest and most influential industries in the world. These industries as we know them today are a long way from their peak of global influence. In the early 21st century, technology has arisen to give us 8 out of the 10 most valuable companies in the world. Throughout these ebbs and flows in global industries, there has always been one constant. Global banking has been there to accommodate and steer this progress remaining relevant as other businesses have faded into obscurity. The world of banking is as hated as it is misunderstood. More often than not, the attempts to explain how banking works quickly devolve into wild conspiracies. Tensions arising from ever-increasing debt levels have caused many people to point the finger at these institutions. These are institutions that only seem to get richer as the world becomes more and more unstable. The 2008 mortgage crisis was kicked off by major structural issues in the global banking system and exacerbated by record levels of household debt. Today, the world is on the brink of yet another financial downturn and yet again, household debts are at record levels. So is banking really to blame? Are the wild conspiracy theories about central banks and soaring national debts true? What role are banks supposed to play in our modern economies? And more importantly, what role do they actually play? This episode of Economics Explained was made possible by our fans on Patreon. If you would like to gain early access to these videos before they're uploaded to YouTube, as well as participate in exclusive live Q&A sessions, please consider supporting our channel on patreon.com slash economicsexplained. Banks were not always the silent superpowers they are today. They actually had very humble beginnings. Understanding these origins is instrumental in revealing the most valuable asset the bank has on its books. It's trust. Banking as we know it today was forged in the foundries of goldsmiths. These tradesmen would ply their craft at minting jewellery and most importantly, coins. For hundreds of years, gold has been universally accepted as a currency. Gold was accepted as a currency because it was cost dense, very chemically stable, easy to work with, and it had a limited supply. Gold became the intermediary for trade and no longer would people have to rely on barter or other less than ideal currencies. Gold by itself is still difficult to trade with though. It's hard to tell if some crafty conman is trying to pass off gold alloys as pure gold, it's difficult to break up a chunk of gold for a prescribed value, and it's also risky for an average person to keep too much gold for fear of being robbed. Minting coins was the solution to the first two problems. By building up a good reputation, goldsmiths could cast gold coins with guaranteed purity and weight. So long as the coins retained the seal of the goldsmith, people would be able to determine their value instantly, without having to go through the trouble of weighing and verifying the gold for every transaction. Of course, people would attempt to forge these coins, which meant that there was a constant arms race to make these seals more ornate and difficult to imitate. This goes to show that even from its humble beginnings in the workshop of tradesmen, banking was all about the trust that people had in the institution. Of course, this simple arrangement didn't last forever because of the third problem with gold. It was risky to keep on hand. People trusted goldsmiths to keep their gold because their whole business model relied on their reputation. 
The goldsmiths' facilities had to be fortified and protected given the value of the materials they worked with day in and day out. For a price, goldsmiths would store coins in their vaults. This provided another source of income for the goldsmiths and a peace of mind for people hoarding their life savings. This is similar to banks today that offer negative interest rates on deposits. It sounds bizarre to pay money to give someone money, but a lot of people are happy to do it just to ensure that their wealth is secure. But for the goldsmith, of course, this humble arrangement did not last forever. Business really took off when goldsmiths started commodifying their trust. In exchange for people's deposits, goldsmiths would write receipts detailing the amount of gold on deposit and where the bearer of this receipt could pick their gold up from. People would again try to forge these receipts, so the goldsmiths had to put a lot of time and effort into making these receipts just as ornate as the coins that they minted. But now, it's a common misconception that goldsmiths started making their fortunes lending out their depositors gold directly. This certainly happened, but in reality, there was a much more lucrative way for them to commodify their trust. The deposit receipts goldsmiths gave out started to be used for trade directly. People found it much easier to carry around these receipts than gold coins because they were far less heavy and could reflect a larger value than what was reasonable to carry around in a coin pouch. This was the origins of modern day banknotes, where even today, the paper rectangles represent a much higher value than the metal coins. The respect that the public gave these deposit receipts was the turning point that kicked off modern global banking. Now, if a goldsmith wanted to loan money, they did not need to give out their own gold or even their depositors gold, they could just write out these receipts. People understood that these receipts were exchangeable for their nominated value in gold, so they continued to trade with them knowing that they were as good as gold. What this let goldsmiths do was write more loans with a greater value than what they physically had in gold. If a goldsmith personally had one tonne worth of gold and was keeping nine tonnes of other people's gold, he would have a total of ten tonnes worth of gold in his vault. In this reality, there would be deposit receipts for nine tonnes of that gold out there in the economy being used for trade, which at any point could be exchanged back for real, physical gold. Although, there would be nothing stopping a crafty goldsmith just loaning out more of these receipts when people asked him for a loan. The borrower can still use this receipt to make whatever purchase they need to, the goldsmith gets to collect interest on the gold that never existed, and the people holding onto these deposit receipts still believe that they could all be handed back in for gold. It's a win-win all around. Or at least it would be until too many people came back and demanded gold. If this lending got out of hand, there may be receipts floating around in the economy for 100 tonnes worth of gold. If even one-tenth of people came back in to exchange their receipts for gold, the goldsmith would be completely broke. And then, as soon as just one person can't withdraw their gold, the news would spread quickly and people would swarm through the doors to trade in their receipts for real gold that never existed in the first place. This whole system relies on people rarely ever withdrawing their gold to prevent what came to be known as a bank run. Over time, this system became more and more institutionalised, goldsmiths rebranded to banks and became the go-to place for deposits and lending. Still, the threat of bank runs loomed ever-present, so the solution was a central bank. As banks grew in popularity, these institutions started to realise that their own success was determined 
by the success of their competition. If a single bank experienced a bank run, that panic would spread quickly to other banks' customers which would quickly reveal just how exposed they all were all along. These banks needed an extra layer of security to ensure that every individual bank would always be able to service its withdrawals. The solution was a central bank. A central bank is like a bank to other banks. If there was an instance where too many customers withdrew gold from one bank on a given day, the central bank could step in and borrow gold off all of the other banks with plenty of reserves and give it to the bank that needed to satisfy these customers' withdrawals. By doing this, banks could pool their collective gold reserves which meant that it was far less likely that any single bank would ever be unable to service its withdrawals. This meant it was far less likely to have a run on an individual bank, which meant there was never going to be a mass panic that took down all of the banks. Sounds great, but there were a few key issues. For starters, this central bank would need all of the participating banks to use a single universal currency. Before central banks, depository receipts were unique to every different bank. They had their own designs and were only exchangeable for gold at the particular bank noted on the receipt. Central banks issued their own notes that were to be universally accepted anywhere. This itself wasn't actually an issue. In fact, having one single currency made trade a lot easier. The issue was that if the public lost faith in this currency, the whole system would be made redundant. All of the nation's perceived savings would be wiped out and there would be no backup options like there were in a system with a range of totally independent banks. The second and more significant problem was that giving the power to control money to a single institution that was not a government was hugely destabilizing. Permit me to issue and control the money of a nation and I care not who makes its laws. Famously explained by Mayor Rothschild, who was one of the most powerful bankers in history. Like a lot of information around central banking, the Rothschild and money in general, this quote is actually not true. There is no evidence to suggest that Mayor Rothschild ever said this. What must be understood about lenders, gold, money, central banks and the Rothschilds is that they were all very powerful, very complicated and very opaque. All of which is fertile ground for wild conspiracies. It's difficult to really understand the role of banking in the modern world without it being described by someone on a soapbox regurgitating very popular, very entertaining and very alarmist theories about what for the most part is simply not true. So, what is the role of global banking? It's just that of a boring middleman. Banks have an important role to play in our economies. They are known as financial intermediaries. Their function is to facilitate trade and business through the easy storage and transfer of money. From barter to gold coins to worldwide wire transfers, the ability to reliably pay for goods is a central function of an economy. We owe our quality of life today as much to the financial revolution as we do to the industrial revolution. The role of an intermediary also extends to allocating capital efficiently. Of course, another major part of a bank's role is loaning money. In theory, this contributes to economic development by taking idle capital deposits and allocating them towards promising businesses that need cash to start producing value for society. But this role of a financial intermediary is not a glamorous one. There is no reason to expect that this industry should be more than what accounting firms are today. 
Banks provide a service that takes some skill and manpower. They provide a valuable service and could probably charge a healthy premium for it, but they would still fall far short of the multi-trillion dollar monolith they are today. So where has this extra power and influence come from? Professor Richard Werner is an award-winning economist on this issue, and he notes that there is no value added by the financial sector, regardless of what kind of financial products they might come up with. But he also offers an explanation as to their role in reality. They don't add value, they make up value. The 20th century saw a paradigm shift in the role of global banking. The Federal Reserve was formed and then the Bretton Woods Conference was held that made the United States the de facto financial centre of the world. The Bretton Woods Conference is something that we have explored before on this channel, but in short, it was a meeting held on July of 1944 that brought together 44 nations and agreed that all currencies should be pegged to the US at a set exchange rate, and in turn, the US dollar would be pegged to gold. This system worked fine up until the 1970s, when the gold standard was slowly abolished in the United States. This now meant that a US dollar was only worth what someone was willing to trade for it, which sounds bad in theory, but in reality, it gave financial institutions far more flexibility in how they created wealth. Remember back to the cunning goldsmith that wrote deposit notes for gold that never existed? Well, banks today get to do that on a much larger scale. When you go to the bank and take out a home loan, the bank does not move money around from depositors into a cheque for a new home. No, they simply type out the loan amount into a new account in the same way that the goldsmith wrote out an unbacked deposit note. The difference today is that these figures in a modern bank account are the store of value. Dollars aren't so coveted because they are exchangeable for gold anymore, they are so valuable because we are forced to believe that they have value. Banks ensure that these dollars have value in two ways. The first is by demanding these dollars back with interest. People can't pay their home loans with seashells or livestock or even gold bars. They need to pay it back in US dollars. This means if people don't want their home repossessed, they need to get some US dollars. The second is by ensuring that the government levies taxes in this currency. Federal income taxes were introduced the same year as the Federal Reserve, and this was no coincidence. And just the same, if you don't want the punishments that come along with not paying your taxes, you better believe that these US dollars have value. Being able to conjure something into existence that has value has made banks modern day alchemists. And this is what Professor Richard Werner identifies as the turning point in global finance. Banks are no longer intermediaries, they are originators. The goldsmiths of yesteryear were a bit cheeky in writing loans with deposit receipts for gold that didn't exist, but what they were creating was effectively gold derivatives. These notes derived their value from the idea that they were exchangeable for gold. Today, banks write loans with debt agreements and make up the cash. The phrase all money is created as debt is thrown around a lot when people try to explain this issue, but that's not entirely true. Modern debt in any form is the equivalent of goldsmith's deposit receipts. Debt, in a sense, is a derivative of cash. These debts derive their value from the idea that they are exchangeable for cash with interest. This causes the same bank run problem we saw earlier, but not in the way that you might expect. 
Before modern banking, these institutions were afraid that too many people would come back in and exchange their notes for gold. They simply didn't have enough gold to cover all of these notes. Today, modern banking systems are afraid that too many people will try to pay off their debt. There simply is not enough cash in existence to pay off all of the debt in existence. The Federal Reserve Bank estimates that the M2 money supply, that is all money kept in bank accounts, savings accounts and as physical cash, is around $18 trillion after a huge spike in early 2020 caused by quantitative easing measures. The national debt is currently sitting at $26.1 trillion. When record levels of household debt are added on top of this, this debt exceeds $40 trillion. This is to say nothing of state and municipal debts. If people tried to pay off all of their debt tomorrow, there would just not be enough cash in existence to make that happen. When it is remembered that all of this debt is also accruing interest, people would be forgiven for feeling a little bit concerned. It starts to look like the entire economy is the equivalent of someone taking out a new credit card to pay off their old credit card, simply waiting for the day when this whole thing collapses. But there is still hope for the system. There is still a better way. Professor Richard Werner notes that the current debt-based monetary system is not inherently bound to fail like many people would suggest. In fact, the ability for this system to allocate capital and increase people's willingness to go out and spend is actually a force for good. The system does inherently rely on an ever-increasing debt pool, but that is not bad so long as productive output keeps up with this increase in debt. If an economy was to grow its output by 3% per year and the debt and money supply was only to grow by 2% per year, this would be perfectly fine. What you might see in this scenario is that things would actually start to get cheaper. If there is 2% more cash in a society but 3% more goods and services, the businesses providing these goods and services would have to compete more fiercely for a relatively smaller supply of cash. A really important thing to note here is that this only works if output increases, not necessarily GDP. GDP measures the sum total of all transactions in an economy, whereas output measures the total value of things created in that economy. If someone were to make a table and then trade it back and forth 10 times with a friend for $10, they would have raised GDP by $100. In the same example, output is still only one table. There are many asset classes that do not contribute to increasing output, but do contribute to increasing GDP. Verma argues that major banks have increasingly favoured inert asset classes like real estate through mortgages that just sit there and don't actually make anything. If these speculative asset classes continue to weigh too heavily in an economy, we will eventually get to a tipping point where genuine output can no longer sustain the demands of the debt burden on the economy. The solution is smaller banks with more of a focus on lending to businesses that plan to produce wealth. Lending to a business, especially a new business, is much more difficult than lending to someone looking for a mortgage. It's more risky, especially for a larger bank, because it's difficult to formulate financial products that suit every single new business. By encouraging a larger number of smaller banks that have a more direct relationship with businesses, the financial system could encourage more productive growth. Germany is a great example of this theory showing positive results. 
The nation has a large number of so-called Volksbanken, or People's Banks, better known in the West as Cooperative Banks. These banks work directly in communities and bank managers will probably personally know most of their clientele. This gives them a lot more flexibility to differentiate good business owners from bad business owners based on more than the nominal figures that a larger bank would look at. One could argue that perhaps Werner is biased, given that he is German himself, but the figures really don't lie. Germany has a famously industrious society and their financial sector is historically rock solid, despite having all of the same national banking structures as the United States. So, there is still hope for the system yet. Global banking is not inherently evil. It is an industry like any other, full of businesses with a profit motive, employees to pay and shareholders to keep happy. Commercial and central banks are unbelievably powerful entities that control a lot of money, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have grand ambitions of world domination. Global banking has some curiosities like money creation through debt that sounds very alarming to the average person that thinks of it through the same lens of average personal finance. In reality, these functions are very logical, functional, and if we are honest, pretty boring. The narrative that central banks controlled by lizard people that have been scheming for decades to turn us all into debt slaves is much more entertaining. But these tall tales only pull attention away from the more mundane problems with the system. Banking should be a boring middleman accommodating the growth of productivity and trade. It should not be a force to drive wild speculation. Hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, please consider liking and subscribing. This video is made possible by our patrons over on Patreon. If you want to have your say about what country or topic we explore next, please consider supporting the channel like these awesome people did. Thanks guys. Bye.